Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Alex Wilson at his home in Temple Guiting, Gloucestershire. Recorded by Henry Law on the 25th of October 2022. Interviewed by Tim Warren. Edited by Henry Law. Mr. Wilson's a photographer. Good morning. Good morning, yeah. So, uh, when did you start? As oh, in, where God. were you born? And I know it's just a slightly more complex uh, yes. for some people. Yes, that's a very loaded question. So, uh, do you know where you were born? Yeah, yeah, I was born in Queen Charlotte's Hospital in Hammersmith. Okay. Doesn't exist. What in, year? In, uh, 1963, so... Three, the year of the cold winter, same as me. Same as you, yes. Very cold winter. And I was in the middle of that very yeah, cold yeah, winter. Yeah. Uh, born there. Backstory is that I was put up for adoption the day I, I was born. My, uh, I went and lived with uh, some foster parents for six weeks before my adoption. You, you, you only know this because somebody's told you this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was never a secret. My yeah. parents, and when I say parents, I mean my parents who adopted me. Yeah, so uh, so for reference, we're just calling them your parents because they looked after you from dot to now. Yeah, literally yeah. dot till now. And, uh, you know, where I talk about my birth mother. Yeah. But uh, it was never a secret. And actually, many people have asked, you know, do you remember when you were told? And actually, I'm, bizarrely, I have this recollection that my mum told my brother and I we were adopted. And hold for it. So you're, you've got an older brother. Yes. Who is... Also adopted. He's also adopted, so we're not genetically... Yeah. Um, yes, I could, sorry. Yes. Uh, but I seem to remember we were in a petrol station in Rickmansworth. I mean, you know, <laughs> talked about time. Shuttle BP. I have no idea, but I think we got Green Shield stamps. And it was worried about sixpence a gallon. <laughs> yeah. And so, it was a gallon, not least. Yes, it was definitely a gallon then. And I seem to remember that was the first time we were told, and I must have been sufficiently young... I didn't really and when understand. when you say we, you would think you and your brother... Were, yes, okay. in the car with my mum. Yeah. And she must have told us in response to something my brother had asked. And it was just... But it was always just there that we were adopted. So it wasn't like some large pregnant pause. You thought, what's this about? It just, it just got yep. spurted out and that spurted was it. Spurted yeah. out and yeah. life carried on yeah. as it had. There was no change. So it didn't um, seem like a shock or anything different. It's just what your mum... Yeah, dad, it just, yeah, it just was you. the norm. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, these two fantastic parents who, you know, yeah. just showed incredible love and support for me in the good times. And obviously they provided a very stable, loving home for you and you never felt the need to look no. elsewhere for anything yes. else. Yes, and for a long, for nice. all my life, and I still hold to this, I couldn't have had better parents. They were the most yeah. stable, as you say, really loving to both yeah. my brother and I, very, very supportive in everything I've done. Yeah. You know, they treated us like their children. There was, you know, it was, there was no... Because you are. Children. Yes, you know, for us, yeah. uh, my mum couldn't have children. Yeah. So uh, she had had a marriage before she'd met my dad, which had, I mean, back in, it must have been dissolved yeah. around 1960-ish, which okay. was probably quite unusual. Yeah. But she couldn't have children, got together with my dad, and they put the process of adopting uh, children in place. I think it's, it was significantly easier back in the early 60s than yeah. now. Uh, as you know, I found my birth mother, which is something I did a few years ago. Yeah. Um, and it's something I'd never felt compelled to do for a long time. I think there was an element of being loyal to my mum, who yeah, uh, passed away. It must be a weird... Yes. Weird, it's like, you, I'm not yeah. searching for anything. Why am I need to, Why do I find, yeah. need to find my yeah. birth mother? Because I'm not looking for anything. Yeah. And it crossed my mind when I decided uh, to start a family. There was issues about one's genetics. Would it be, yeah. should I find out, was there some terrible disease in the family or that? But I've, yeah. I've always had very good health. There's no reason to think. Yeah. Uh, and interestingly... When it was very close to when my daughter was born, so that's 1997, I was actually approached, and it'd be quite interesting to know whether it was legal or not, but I was approached by a th an independent social worker. Yeah. But she wrote to me in a coded letter, but the code was so simple to understand. <laughs> yes, I Do you want this? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like, basically, she was working on behalf of my birth mother, to, and was reaching out to me. Oh, so was your birth mother looking for you then? Yes. So that is, yeah, 25 
plus years so ago. So what happened to that? Did you just think no? I, I thought about it long and hard and I decided I didn't want to have that Did contact. you tell your mum and dad that? No, I never told them. I don't know why. Yeah. I think I felt it would be disloyal to them in some way. I felt it was a bit like saying something's not complete. You haven't yeah. ticked all the boxes and therefore I need to go and do it. Which I think on one level they, they could have, they would have understood but I just decided not to do it. For you, that must be weird, because it does inject a little bit of something into your life, whether it's doubt yes, or curiosity no, or guilt or... Yes, and there's no go doubt. Go to bed at night and think, ooh. Yeah, the thought of making contact with... That's when it started, so were, 25 were you years also ago. thinking, why does she want contact? Yes, why now and she things like that. She lives next door to me. <laughs> yes, well, actually, <laughs> that's quite interesting. Um, no, she didn't live next door to me, <laughs> yeah. But um, okay, so you turned that offer down. Turned that offer down, and was quite. I was very comfortable with it. I, I had a very good friend. who's was a very interesting man, called Art Napoleon. Oh, okay, a, a great name, a New York Jew who'd been he'd done directing of adverts in New York, and then moved to Hollywood okay. as a scriptwriter and, and director, and made these a couple of real cult films. A couple of one on surfing. He's like the yeah. coolest guy you've ever met. He was well into his eighties when I kind of met him. And basically, in Hollywood, he became an alcoholic. And he told me this great story once about how he used to go to Vegas for the weekend. Sorry, we're going off in a massive what? tangent here. <laughs> yeah. But he used to go in his convertible car with, uh, what's Michael Douglas's dad called? Oh, Kirk. Kirk, Doug Kirk Douglas yeah. and Grant Gable. Clark Gable. Clark Gable. Clark Gable. Yeah, yeah. And Art Napoleon, uh, they were all signed to the same Clark studio. Clark Kirk. Yeah, yeah. They're getting one of their convertible cars, drive to Vas uh, Vegas yeah. and go on a bender for the weekend. Yeah. And they used to do all this, they always do this thing where they put $5 each in the ashtray because there was one thing which was certain is when they reformed it sort of uh, very, very early Monday morning to try and get back to the studio in LA on time was they would have no money. <laughs> so $5 each meant there was enough petrol and coffee to get back. Yeah. So weird. yeah, and he basically was an alcoholic and realised he was going to die if he didn't do it. So he actually kind of brought a boat and set off around the world. And a very long story, but he ended up in the UK being a counsellor, oh, okay. in particular helping other alcoholics. He was a reformed alcoholic. Yeah. Amazing guy, great stories. And I actually went to talk to him as someone I respected about this decision not to contact my birth mother. Yeah, so and he listened. Yeah, he listened. I just kind of felt, am I bullshitting myself yeah. in denial and he thought my argument was very strong so that kind of passed and then so fast it, forward a bit fast and you forward. decided to look yeah forward. I think it was a sense that I had this narrative in my head based on no information at all it's literally something I'd made up in my head maybe yeah. to kind of explain something that my birth mother was probably Irish working as an au pair in London in 1963 got pregnant yeah. had me and headed back to Ireland and that was it but if she was 18 through 20 and I'm approaching 60 yeah. or it was say 55 uh, 57 when I started to look for her she'd be 75 77 ish your last there's, chance yeah that actually there's a chance she was already dead yeah or if she wasn't, you know, this was my last chance. And I knew the name, which I've now forgotten, so don't ask, of the adoption agency, which yeah. did my adoption. It was a very small so you agency. So you didn't get in touch with the coded independent social... No, person, no. I couldn't remember her name then. Um, but I managed to find the, my the adoption agency who dealt with my adoption had closed down yeah. 20, 30 years yeah. ago, but... The comp another charity, adoption charity. So all those files. records must be kept. So are yes, you, you're on record that, somewhere. And yes, record and there's somewhere. a legal requirement to keep them. So another charity had taken them on. And I contacted this charity. They confirmed they had my file. And that starts a sort of interesting process. Because firstly, they confirmed they had my file. But before you could really move forward, you get a counsellor. Okay, so warn you of the pitfalls. Yes, and kind of talks to you a couple of times about the process, your thinking, everything about it. Yeah. And then a few weeks later, um, I went down to South East London to the charity to see my file, basically. And the first thing is we went into this little room and I remember it so well. It's, the charity doesn't have much money. And th this room had a couple of 
tired, comfy chairs and a little coffee table. Full of children's tears. <laughs> yeah, and but yeah, box of tissues. <laughs> yeah, box of tissues. And I sat down and I have a chat with Caroline. Then she goes, OK, I'm going to go off and get your file now. So she went out. And I looked at this box of tissues and thought, God, I bet some people find this really emotional. Well, no, you would do, yeah. Yeah, and I just hadn't. I just, like, oh, I remember thinking, wow, some people must. But what's quite interesting, she came back with the file. She sat next to me and she opened it. And the first form on top, I was crying like a baby. And all I had seen was the age of my mother when she'd had me. That's the first. It was a whole form, handwritten, uh, filled in by hand. The first thing I thought was 30 years old. And I just started crying. She was 30. When she had me. So this narrative of some yeah. teenager Irish au pair, yeah. bang, gone out the window. Yeah, totally different. Yeah, really different. Yeah, yeah. And then we started going down the form. And, you know, you see uh, your birth name, you know, sort of Matthew and other information. And um, Caroline, the counsellor, also said, Look, there's something really interesting about your file that, it's much larger than normal. There's a lot more paperwork in it and correspondence in it than normal. But some important legal documents have been removed and they, you know, they should be written on the front who, why they're not there. It hasn't, they've just been taken out. And a lot of that alluded to my father, who he was. Uh, I'm not gonna say who my father is for various reasons. Um, but you're of an age when I told yeah. you, you knew who he was. Yeah. You know, he was a celebrity businessman, an entrepreneur. He had done it. He wasn't, they weren't married. He was having oh, an affair with her. He's married. So, I mean, he went to a lot of trouble to not have yeah. his name included in so this probably form. for your birth mum, it's a very sad outcome. Maybe. Yes, to the point where she had changed her surname She's to his. Away. Yeah, and she lived in the company um, flat in Pimlico. He had his family, um, you know, and his wife out in the country somewhere. And for all intents and purposes, she was living the life as his wife in London. And uh, both of them travelled with their work. So it was probably quite easy to hide, you know, this affair. But basically, he was sufficiently high profile that when the board of directors discovered he was having this affair and that... Uh, basically my father was told to get rid of this problem of a pregnant girlfriend and he just ditched my mum and any connection with my birth mums just straight off. It's also traumatic having a baby and getting rid of it and being dumped. Yes. Yes. Remember this is back in the early 60s. You know, no say, no nothing. And she, though she was 30 and had a career, she didn't feel she could bring up a child on her own. But out of this And there was lots of letters in my file from my birth mother because she travelled around the world with work. Every time she moved to another country, she would write to the adoption saying, please update my details. If my son contacts me, I will fly him anywhere in the world. Maintaining contact. Yes. So you you did meet, did you meet her in the end? Yeah, uh, there was lots of information about where she was and things. And, you know, sort of, uh, so there was a mobile phone number on file, an email address and a postal address. Very available. Very available. And um, amazingly, a few days later, she came back to me and she said, uh, the email address has just come back, been bounced back to us. Uh The mobile phone's been disconnected and that, that address nobody knows that she hasn't lived there for quite a long time. And there was this horrible kind of... Now you want it. Yeah, now you want it in this sense, oh, she's died. She's died and and that's why she just hasn't updated, no one's updated the file. And then a a chance conversation with uh, Megan, my girlfriend's friend who's in publishing. We knew from research and Googling that my birth mother had written a couple of books, one of them about her life as a air stewardess in the 50s and 60s when it was very glamorous. Yeah. She had actually written a book called uh, Before We Were Trolley Dollies. It was oh, okay. kind of independently yeah. published. It wasn't for a main publisher. But this friend was able to kind of put her researchers onto it. And she came back to us a few days, or came back to Megan, my partner, and said, I found her. She's alive. She's in a nursing home oh. and gave the details, which we then handed on to the uh, Caroline from the adoption uh, company. Yeah. And she made contact and we set up a meeting uh, to go down to Bognor Regis. 
a meet on neutral ground. She was very excited to meet me and she was, she had the first signs of dementia, okay. but she knew who I was, so excited to meet me. What was interesting, it's, you expect it to be unbelievably overwhelming, you know, and everything you'd ever thought about yourself or, you know, questions you'd only asked yourself, never put in the public domain, will be answered by beating your birth mother. And it was completely overwhelming and completely underwhelming in equal proportion. You know, it's quite funny because, of course, you have no history with this woman. This, You know, it's your birth mother. And it's like, but actually we could have got another... 80 year old lady. Yeah, yeah. Yes. How do you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, literally. It's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, anyone could have come from the nursing home. It's like, she was your mother. Well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but there was, she obviously was my birth mother. <laughs> but it was how, interesting how it was more underwhelming than overwhelming. Yeah. But we've, you know, I've seen her a, a number of times. Sadly, she's now three years later. Obviously, lockdown didn't help because yeah. I couldn't see her for a long time. And that also coincided with my father being in a nursing home in London, who I spent a lot of time with. And I'd kind of promised my mum a long time ago that she knew she was dying first, yeah. that I would, you know, be around for my dad. Yeah. So in keeping that promise to my dad, I was spending a lot of time with him except he proved to be incredibly resistant. I know, I was all <laughs> yeah, saying, is your dad you know, dead yet? Is your dad dead yet? No, 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 no still going. No. Sort of like, it feels like, I don't know how long it was, five to time. seven years yeah. of progressively getting more and more involved and him wanting me there more and more. And then so it got too much. Could, yes, <laughs> but in the end, he was in a nursing home. But I felt, you know, I needed to see more of him yeah, than, my, uh, than my birth mother. Yeah. And COVID didn't help, so... It was probably about nine months when we didn't see each other. But we I try and go and see her now in her nursing home. So she's still alive? Yeah, yeah. She's just turned 90. Oh, OK. But she is now really demented yeah. uh, to the point she doesn't know who I am. So no other night, kids in her life? No. So that's pretty sad. She yeah. was so distraught by having to give me up. That makes it even sadder in a way. Yes. And she told me this very sad story that she actually, while giving birth, had a screen put up. So she never even saw me. She never touched me, never saw me. Maybe that's for her her own... Her own sanity, her own way of dealing with it, was to um, have literally no visual reference. And even then, I think she regretted it quite quickly. But there's nothing could be done. But, yeah, the last time I went to see her a few weeks ago, she was sufficiently demented. She had no idea who I was. And, you know, she'd talk about her parents or grandparents still being alive. And obviously they died decades ago. The time before that was quite interesting because she didn't know who I was as Alex. But when I used the name she had given me, Matthew, she then understood who I was. But we've now gone beyond that. So what was your dad's name? My dad was Anthony, Tony. He was always called Tony. He was in advertising. When was Tony born? God, that he was born in 19... 27. Do you know where? Yeah, East London. Um, London boy. London boy through and through. Working class. But his parents were... So his, I remember you telling me he, he didn't want to be down the bottom, which is obviously where maybe his parents had been. And he, Yeah, he was quite ambitious. And he was, he was actually adopted himself. Oh, OK. Um, and they only had one child. So he dad. was an only child? Only child. Okay, adopting in the 20s would be yeah, rare. Yeah, really rare. Yeah. Um, I don't really... Um, so did he ever talk about that or? No, he did. I once heard him tell a tale which he goes, my mother died a virgin. How many? <laughs> you know, which, you know, you're going, yeah, that's tricky. My name's and, Jesus. you know, and then you're like, oh, dad, you're getting so old. And then he explained that basically his mum never consummated their marriage. She was such a Victorian figure. Did she you actually, meet her? I, yeah, she, now she, I would have. I don't remember her that's at all. Small. She probably died when I was three. So they were part of London, can you remember? Uh, yeah, round West Ham, Upton okay, Park Upton area. Park, yeah. I remember I used to have these three great aunts who lived uh, more Forest, Forest Hill Forest direction. Hill, yeah, okay. None of them married. Uh, they all lived in the same house in the East End or, you know, Forest Hill direction. Yeah. And they'd never been outside Greater London or Essex in their entire lives, except for one, Ivy, the youngest one, who once 
took a paddle steamer to Calais. <laughs> Well, it's Calais. It's Calais. <laughs> yes. Yeah, in a paddle steam, which I think went from South End. You know, it's like pretty yeah. much. And then she went to live with a distant cousin when in her 80s in San Francisco. Oh, I remember you telling me. Yeah, that. yeah. She yeah. got on a Pan Am flight with her yeah. cat yeah. and went to live in. Uh, direction. Yeah, yeah, with her kind of bohemian cousin. Yeah in San Francisco and she became like this minor celebrity, you know, she never saw her again yeah. after she moved there. But apparently she loved life and died, a, you know, yeah. loving, you know, so the climate. So dad's auntie. Yes, yeah, weird, so pretty weird. But my dad was from, you know, an East Londoner yeah. from a quite a humble background, though his mum was a teacher. So there was a lot of books yeah, uh, in the house learning. and re learning. And he managed to get a scholarship to- Do you, do you a, know what his dad did? I think he was a bank clerk at okay. the Bank of England. He was something to do with the Bank of England. Quite a low position, though. Banking so the uh, they weren't doing labouring jobs, yeah, but they, they were very, very limited income. Yeah. And my dad got a scholarship to a public school in Essex where he kind of excelled, was a very smart guy, did really well in exams and things like that. And then uh, he volunteered... The war had started and he tried to join the Indian Army uh, on the officer course, yeah. which is quite entertaining because he never liked curry <laughs> and he never went to India. <laughs> and I think he um, didn't like the thought of going to India, but it was an idea and uh, basically got court-martialed out <laughs> um, after a very... Like curry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it was basically... My dad, it's the most bizarre thing to... I think it's what everyone did was going to the army then. He obviously... Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he had an issue with discipline yeah, and taking true. orders from yeah. people. And this is something which was throughout his sure. life, yeah. <laughs> but he told this story about how, because he was being trained as an officer, he had to take this group of men from A to B, including making a raft and crossing a river and to get to the, uh, you know, the, the final destination. And they were dropped off out the back of a lorry and all the um, officers or people doing the training got back in the lorry and drove off and said, we'll see you at, you know, the, drop, the zone B. And my dad just thought, fuck this. It's not, you know, making a raft, how stupid. Stupid idea. Yeah, so what we'll do is um, we just walk there and go over the bridge yeah. because that seems to be... Because it's working. Uh, yeah, and uh, I'll buy all the guys a pint in the pub <laughs> and then we'll hang around half an hour and just walk on up. Yeah. Job done. Sadly, he didn't realise that all the officers had gone to the said pub. <laughs> so as my dad walked in, <laughs> you know, with his... Yeah. La Here, lads, come on, what are we having? How many, you know, pints? So, ah, all the officers. And he got court-martialed for that. Then uh, I think he then tried the Navy and he got he went to Dartmouth to do the officers course there. Past that, after a week, they discovered he's colourblind. So that's another oh. failed career in uh, the military. So is this during the war years? This think? is during the war. So he then uh, went into the regular army and he was in the, I think they were called like the Essex Brigade or something okay. like that. That was his local group okay. platoon and um but amazingly because he'd kind of by I and mean, this is a real stroke of luck that basically he never saw active service by the time he'd done his training he got dispatched to italy and it, the war in italy was pretty much over and he basically didn't fancy the, uh, the prospect of being shot so maneuvered himself to run a store's uh, a depot, yeah. but got court-martialed again for <laughs> selling things out the back of oh, the depot. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, but, you know, but managed to not be in serious trouble. He got sent to Rome to uh, work on the, uh, it was the newspaper was printed there for the forces, a sort of, you know, forces paper. And he went to work there as a journalist. Come, so that's come, where he's, uh, and, where you know, yeah, and he loved it. You know, he's living in Rome. Uh, he ended up, by the end of the war, by the time he finished there, he spoke absolutely perfect Italian and loved it, loved the Italian ladies. Yeah. And then after the war, he then was asked to help repatriate prisoners of war or personnel back to their country of origin. Okay. And this is where it gets, I mean, I, he kind of told me this. It's like, oh, yeah, I'll be given a train and have to take 2,000 Yugoslavian people back with one day's rations yeah, yeah. for a five-day train journey yeah. and I kind of wonder if he was like 
entry-level spy, which kind of came up a couple of times, but he always denied it. But he also took back some of the prisoners, uh, the Nazis. He took okay. up to uh, up in the Nuremberg. Hague and uh, Nuremberg. That's yeah. it. He also took some of them on trains. And I said, "Well, you, you know, did you get?" When I quizzed him about him, he was very vague. Like, did you get debriefed at the end of the uh, trip? You know, having about what they talked about. And he said, "No, no, no. We weren't allowed to talk to them. You mustn't speak to the prisoners." And it's like. That just wouldn't be my dad. He would have chatted to anyone. Well, yeah, but then you think that was a slightly special case, that, wasn't it? Yes. So, But, um, yeah, but, you know, that was his war. And uh, by the end of that thing, he spoke perfect German. So he came back, lovely. having had a lovely time. Yeah. with but many Italian, languages. Yeah, many languages, which he liked. Lovely Italian ladies, yeah. which he liked. And then started, you know, on Civvy Street. Uh, so he so, came back. To London. Um, back to London, East London. Got a job working for a boiler company, Ascot Boilers, that was it. Yeah, that's kind of marketing departments. Yeah. Marketing was a new thing. And for a sequence of luck, tripping and falling, he ended up basically in advertising. He went via, I think, Granada TV. But he was in marketing and then got moved over to advertising. Um, so when did he meet your mum? And what's uh, your mum's name? Where's your mum from? Uh, my mum was Liz, Elizabeth. And Liz, Liz, your dad or Elizabeth? Uh, Liz, no, she was always Liz, Liz and Tony. And it's quite a fun, actually a, a funny story. Basically, my dad was quite successful, this kind of rising star of advertising. And both of them were on it taking the same train going down somewhere in Surrey, like Epsom or something. And my dad took her shining to um, Liz. to Liz, didn't speak to her, I don't know why, but as she got off, gave her a note, which I've found when they both passed away and was clearing out their house. Uh, it was uh, in an envelope marked, very precious in my mum's handwriting. It was a note from my dad, nice. kind of saying, um, I find you, kind of basically saying, I find you very attractive. <laughs> and if you'd like to go for a drink, uh, please uh, ring yeah. me on this number. And of course, it's pre-mobile. Yeah. So it's kind London of like, 246. Yeah, yeah, Paddington 246. Um, and then it kind of in brackets, office hours only. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just... Don't with you, yeah. And my mum... Because obviously he didn't know if your mum was attached, unattached. Attached, no. Yeah. I probably noted she didn't have a wedding ring on okay. or something like that. And she... Uh, th this is the funny bit. She was reading like Marketing Weekly or something like that or saw uh, a trade magazine like Market Advertising Weekly yeah. or something like that like the same day and he was on the front cover oh, as this rising sign. She thought, oh, I have some of that. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I'll be so, mad at that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he looks like he's doing well in life. Though my dad was very successful ultimately and monetarily took himself from... Unattached. Yes, but he, in later life, he, he wasn't sentimental. Actually, when my mum died, he kind of emptied the house of everything and actually chucked out a lot of what you'd consider, yeah. you know, photos, family... Sometimes it's a way of dealing with your grief, isn't it? It was his so way and he did it unbeknown to me, you, yeah. You're, he's doing the same, it's a yeah. separate thing, isn't it? So... Yeah, you're too Yeah, and my dad was just, uh, I remember this story, my mum saying to me in, in conversation, you know, you, you know, dad could afford a Rolls Royce. He could probably have a chauffeur because yeah. uh, he uh, was but very high up in But he goes, yeah, but I remember her saying, it was a real life lesson of going, he's got no interest in those material yeah, games. Really yeah, he's not, you know, he wants money for family security because yeah. he never had that when he yeah. was young. And he was obsessed with saving and pensions. Yeah. But the idea of having a Rolls Royce to demonstrate, demonstrate his success in advertising. But he was, I mean, he made me start saving money when I uh, had a paper round. He wasn't... Yeah. Um, he took all your money. Yeah, no, but he's like, you know, <laughs> made me start. You know, and even when I went to, uh, I went to art school for four years, he was like, oh, I didn't get, you know, so I was going to be the first person in the family to have a degree. He goes, you don't need a degree, you know, life experience is what, you know, and that was him. He went, had the army and then yeah. set off. So he wouldn't pay anything towards university uh, to pay for college. I was working as a road sweeper and at McDonald's and he'd make me put money to one side, you know. Well, that's to, a good... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Plan, and consequently, yeah. Yeah. you know, if you put away 100 quid when you're 19, it's, it grow, that's the time no, to do it if you can. Because the 100 quid... That's the longest day. Yeah, yeah. So, so did you think you were going to be a photographer? 
Now, so when I um, basically did my A-levels, started doing, um, you only had to, I got away with just doing two A-levels, yeah. maths and art. And the weird thing is, I started the maths A-level and it's like I'd missed a year. Yeah. You know, I got this A at O-level mm. and then they start an A-level and it's like, hang on, did I, have I slept through a yeah. term or something? I don't understand what's yeah. going on. I'm useless. And my dad realised that uh, to go on a foundation course at art school, you didn't need A-levels. Yeah. And he was a bit fed up with paying for school, yeah. you know. And he wasn't enough. tight with yeah. his money. He's not wasting it. But he never wasted it. And he's like, why didn't you apply to art school? Because, you know, because uh, I wanted to do graphics, uh, which I think he quite liked because it was something close to advertising. Yeah. So um, I applied because I was supposedly quite good at art and got into Central St Martins on the foundation course. And to this day, I don't know how I got in because I turned up on foundation and we all start off doing things. And it was a great year. But the first week we all do and I'm just looking at other people's work like they're in a different league to me. I'm just shit. And I can only think there was another Alex Wilson and, Ale <laughs> and Alexandra Wilson, who was this hugely gifted yeah. child. Sitting going, why am I not there? Why am I not in art school? Yeah, yeah. You know, it was the most bizarre thing. But anyhow, actually, I picked up momentum and came under quite a lot of pressure to do fine art, to, uh, to apply to do a fine art degree. Uh, we had some brilliant tutors and I could see that I was quite good at fine art yeah. but I didn't have the confidence or the self-belief to yeah. be able to push myself execute to execute it yeah. so I stuck to plan A applied to do graphics got on the degree course did my degree um, really good time to be there you living at home or did you move out uh, I was half at home, half living with a girlfriend okay. at the time in Islington. So it was all, yeah, it was good. City and it, life. City life, you know, loving London. But it's kind of interesting, having done my degree, and it's, I mean, anyone listening to this who's doing their graphics course are just going to be so annoyed. Because at the end of my degree, you put up your degree show and basically went off and got pissed for two days and then came back and there'd be all these offers of jobs pinned up next to your work. <laughs> and I had about 12 of them, people saying, can you ring me, can you ring me? And some of them were cr clearly crap, so you just chuck them away. But there was one job to go and, I can't even remember the name, a, a good design agency. And I went for an interview. Yes, we want to take you on. And they were once, I was really young because I'd gone at 17 to art school. So I was only 21 when I graduated. And it was quite a, you know, it wasn't like the lowest job in the yeah. design agency. I was going to have people working under me. Yeah. I was like, shit, this yeah. is terrifying. But I was quite good as a yeah. designer. But I was kind of, I'd been a bit of a, a I'd, secretly I wanted to be a photographer. And I'd been like this so you, really... Did you know that then? You like taking pictures? I, like, I love taking pictures. And when I was kind of on my degree course, meant to be doing graphics, I'd kind of go and try and hide out in the dark room a bit. Yeah. It had a very good dark room and there was a guy who was a tutor who was never my tutor but was very encouraging yeah. and basically I kind of left had this job lined up and one of my best friend's brothers worked for a studio in Camden and rang me up going do you want to come and be like a third assistant yeah. for three weeks we've got a You're big in. job coming in yeah so and I, I just thought if I don't try this I'm going to spend my whole life regretting it headed off to Camden third assistant I mean third assistant I mean you'll know this you're not even qualified to make the tea no, you, you know but the uh, they had a massive the yeah there was a massive job so I was kind of logging product in and out and getting them into the right but it is what you have to do isn't it yeah and the first assistant kind of left almost straight away and then my friend's brother became the first assistant and I knew he was planning on leaving to travel and go to Australia. Norman, it? No, it was working, yeah, it was working for Norman. Okay. And my best friend's brother, David, uh, who's genuinely one of the most naturally gifted photographers I've ever met. I knew he was heading, he wanted to go traveling. So I thought, if I can just hang in here yeah. until he hands in, I'll be moved up, this kind of rapid yeah. promotion. And he gave me this great piece of advice because everything we used to shoot we keep spares and we had this massive library of film and he goes, the thing to do is change the coding system. I did it when I arrived. You need to <laughs> change it. Everyone. Yeah, confuse everyone <laughs> so, and change it so nobody else can find the film except you. So each night I was recataloging. Yeah, Norman go, oh, can you, you know, we've had a call, we need to print uh, or, you know, some uh, black and white prints off, uh, you know, whatever. And that sentence in itself sounds so outdated now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Print, you know, it'd be like, yeah, we need 500 black and white. 
eight by, you know, five prints from a job for Urkel or something, yeah. you know, kind of, you know, uh, he goes, you won't know where it is. I'll go and find the next. And he'd go in there and comes out, what's that? What the bloody hell? What have you and yeah. David been up to? <laughs> None of your business. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, Urkel, right. Yeah. That will be under a, a V. v. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, subsection 2B. Oh, Urkel. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, very nice shot. There we go. There it is. I'll print you in. And, and basically David left and... Um, Norman, who became my mentor, uh, and you've met him, is a very kind man, uh, took me on. And I was like the the first assistant. And it was in an era where we were shooting every single day. We had in-house set builders. And I think it was somewhere between 10, 12 people on the payroll um, or freelancing in there. But the set builders worked seven days a week. It was just phenomenal building sets. You know, there there weren't even cordless drills hadn't come in then. So everything had to be clamped together. The flats, yeah. There was so much work that I very quickly had to start shooting kind of the shots Norman didn't want to do. So he'd do the big... To become a photographer, the the hiccup, it's like buying a house, you've got to spend a ton of cash on a machine. Yeah, I remember when I decided I was going to leave and I needed to get my own equipment. One lunchtime, Norman went to the pub and I just walked down to Camden Town. And it used to be there was a bank on every corner. They're not there now. I think they they may be... You know, Nat West is still there. But there was like a Midlands, HSBC, Royal Bank of Scotland, Barclays. But, and I remember going into the... I wouldn't go... I was already with Nat West. I wanted a loan to buy equipment and I wouldn't go to Nat West because I didn't like them. I went into Barclays, the queue was too long. I went into Midland, queue was too long. And I went to Royal Bank of Scotland. And I think it was called Williamson Glynn then. It yeah, wasn't even Williamson called, Glynn, yeah. yeah. Nobody there. Perfect, go straight up to the thing. Because I was on my <laughs> lunch break. Yeah. yeah, why is <laughs> nobody free. here? But I went in and basically came out like half an hour later with a 10 grand loan, unsecured loan. Yeah, like, yeah. I'm setting up on my own as a photographer and I need some money. Yeah, how much do you need? Oh, well, I've costed it out. I had costed it. I needed 10 grand to buy a Sinar 5.4 camera and three lenses, some Lincrom lights and stuff like that, yeah. and maybe a grand to live off for a bit. And I just went down and got this loan and came out yeah. and then said I was going to leave and set up on my own. And how old were you then? 22? Tw- no, 23 probably. So if so, you're 23, you've got a loan. To, so Norman just... Pissed off, get on with it. Yeah, he so, was encouraging, and I used to rent studio space for him. So in a way, he was kind of making a bit of money. Yeah. Aside, but it was quite cheap, and I just built up, built up a portfolio so of clients. Living in town by now. Yeah, and then oh, this. Uh, so I remember you talking about you were assisting, but you were making quite good money on the side. Uh, yeah. Well, you have to shares. remember this. This was kind of okay. So we're in the Margaret Thatcher era. Yeah. And I was also putting, buying shares at the time. And sometimes, because it was all by phone, so it's like lunchtime. Yeah, giant (laughs) phone. You know, no marvel. So I used to ring up Brent and go, yeah, I want to buy £200 worth of so-and-so. And And a week later, it could be worth £400, sell that. You know, then buy something else for well, 400 you pounds. You're earning, you're earning good money, but not too work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was earning more money trading yeah. shares yeah, than I was as a photographer, but it meant I could keep investing. So yeah. you paid back the 10,000 quid. Yeah. Um, I was able to get a mortgage on a small flat. My first flat cost me 47 grand. Where did you buy your first flat? In kind of Kilburn, okay. Bronsbury Park. So were you single then? Buying, uh, single on my own. So you bought uh, a flat by yourself. How old were you then? 25. So 25, single, bought your own flat, your own money. Yeah, I was able to get a mortgage. I'd saved up money, you know, and kind of cobbled it together and did it. But I remember, you know, I had no, I'd kind of brought the flat and then went, I've got no bed. (laughs) I literally had nothing. Yeah, just sleep on your fibres. Yeah, I kind of (laughs) brought mattress, slept on the floor, did, and then I, you know, the photography money was starting to come in, get paid, buy a bed, put the mattress on the bed. Next thing, you know, buy a chair, that's good. You know, buy a telly, you know, literally monthly buy one thing and bad months it may have been... The Tony way. Yes, you know, accumulate. Sell the chair. Yeah, but but (laughs) self-employed. I was always self-employed and it was kind of like, if I don't have the money in the bank, I'm not buying it. So I'd I'd save up the money, buy it. I never took out a loan. Except for that very first loan. Yeah. Uh, so you've got all your stuff, you've got your camera, you've got jobs rolling in, you've got a flat, you're single. Yep. Um, Where do you meet Beedy? Beedy. Uh, right. So a massive job came into the studio, which uh, I was kind of freelancing back to for Zanussi, the uh, 
kitchen appliances and there was hundreds of shots and basically the art director would have meetings with the copywriter we were doing printed brochures and there was about four maybe even five brochures there were hundreds of shots and I did this deal with the studio of getting 40 quid a shot or something which didn't sound much but I knew there was millions of shots yeah millions of shots it was like massive payday and basically it went on so long that the copywriter would come in became friendly with her Susanna and we were doing a social one day and her daughter Beanie came along yeah. you know the rest is history you know we kind of got so, together she so was a fair few years younger and I decided to move uh, a cousin of mine from Australia was over and his company he's older than me and his company had rented a house in Kew at sort of two up two down what would have been originally a, yeah. uh, probably someone who worked in Kew Gardens yeah. house yeah. and I turned into the road and I just thought oh I really like it here yeah. I'd like to buy one of these not knowing how ridiculously overpriced <laughs> Kew is yeah. but I waited until this wreck came on the market which I could just afford it was £118,000 Tiny you know, cash. Yeah, but bizarre. I mean, it shows how stupid it was. The flat in London had doubled in value in a couple of years. Yeah. And I sold that for like 96. Bonkers. And so there was a, a gap, but I knew... It, it was a massive gap. But yeah, I was doing this ridiculous Zanussi job and it was literally like, I can afford this. And then yeah. brought the house and the Zanussi job was coming going on. And so is that the house in Park? Uh, no, that one was in Alexandra Road. Oh, okay. So uh, a tiny little house, did it up. Um, so Bede was, Bede was with you by uh, now? She was finishing university and starting her career in television and okay. documentaries and things yeah. like that. Then Ella came along. Uh, now, Ella born? Uh, 97. Get this right. Yeah, 97. Some people haven't. It's on yeah. record. Yeah. So but, um, born, so sorry, Ella yeah, was born in 97. Yes, but we decided we needed a bigger house. And before, literally about 10 days before Ella was due, um, Beady went off to view a house, a bigger house in uh, Kew. And she rang me up. She goes, I think this is the house. This is the one. We'd had, yeah. We've attempted to buy a couple of other houses, but been outbid and things like that. And I just thought, oh, God. So I've got, she's clearly... This sounds really sexist and patronised. I suppose it's not, but I mean, it was almost like she's really pregnant. Hormones must yeah. be a factor here. Mad. She's gone mad. This house sounds enormous. Yeah. What's going on? Mommy. So I've got to play along with it, but not buy it. Yeah. We ended up buying it. <laughs> and the bizarre thing is the people selling it wanted to exchange really quickly, like within two weeks, but didn't want to complete until the August. And Ella was due in February. So we viewed it, and I remember the day I came back from the hospital after Ella was born, reading the survey on the house, and kind of like, this sounds terrible, what am I doing? Yeah. It wasn't that bad, but you know, you know how surveys always sound really bad? And negative. Then negative, yeah. and then you start again. Uh, so we bought that house and moved there. So you there. sold Alexander Road, Road. for yeah. what? So you paid uh, 118, you remember what you sold it for? Yeah, 227. Yeah. Mad, isn't it? Pounds, yeah. And that wasn't even the highest offer. The estate agent said, take this one. I know this woman's got cash. She's good yeah. to go. So we sold it. And all it, and what it meant is the bigger house we're buying for 400 grand... Got cheaper. Got cheaper, you know. So this, what I thought was taking on this ridiculous mortgage, I just took 50-odd grand or so 40, so whatever it is. sold for 227 and bought... What's the address of the one you... Uh, Laybourne Park, 400, just over 400,000 yeah. back in... 1997 yeah but that became the family home and then our yeah. second son was born there our second son my first, first son, son. Yeah, second child. yeah ben ben was ben born then uh 2000 uh august 2000 set as a toddler yeah oh yeah he came on that shoot yeah. he, did, he yeah. didn't like it that much did well i think he came once i saw him up some wood in that weird studio yeah. which is being next door to the english national orchestra Yes, uh, kind of not Ladbroke Grove, kind of Ladbroke Grove, Shepherd's Bush, off the roundabout. Uh, But then uh, ended up getting divorced, as you know. And I remember a little story about that. I remember coming to build a set there, or you had a set up there already, and I came up to do something. I think I must have been working for Tim still, or I can't remember what it was, but I was round the back, trying to screw something, and you were holding on to something. We'd both been down, and you just said... My wife's leaving me. And I think I said, yeah, mine's leaving me as well. And I carry on the screw. <laughs> <laughs> she said, no, my wife's really leaving me. I said, fucking hell, really? Yeah. And I remember you, this, around the, this, it was probably a space that wide. And you just told me it was kneeling down. The <laughs> For the record, Tim showing <laughs> yeah, up anyway. small yard. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't realise how yeah, it's kind of catastrophic thing. emotional that is. You just blurted yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't expected. Yeah. But I remember 
I mean, I'm, I don't want to go into the details. No, it's not fair. Interest, but I know it's, but it's, it's, it's just mean, changed. Yeah, and one of the things which struck me was I was 42 at the time, that uh, thinking, if I'm lucky, I'm halfway through my life yeah. at 42. And I can either be... Tony come to the surface. Practical, yeah. But kind of really thinking, I can either be angry the rest of my life... No point in being... Or I can start again. And, you know, I chose to be, like, positive and make things happen. Eat you up. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, but luckily, you know, every day I went to work, I loved it. Yeah. And luckily work is a... It's not a nine-to-five. It's on, it's off, it's up, it's down. Yeah, it's it's all over the place. There's no two days. And, you know, you know... You and I would see each other regularly. Yeah, you know, I could yeah. talk to you, you know, talk to other people. Yeah. Sarah, yeah. Um, Super, w- Sarah. Super Sarah, amazing assistant, and now turns out to be even better photographer. Yeah. Um, she was working for me full time. Yeah. Then, you know, so she kind of yeah. was just this kind of, yeah, she was a kind of great person to have around. Never, you know, yeah. asked enough to be concerned, but never it was never an issue. Yeah, but you know, about. yeah. So your life did get slightly. Tipped up, so you stayed yes. in the same house, kids. Yes, I managed to having uh, being uh, my dad's thing was always pay off your mortgage, pay off your mortgage. So I paid off my mortgage on this house in Kew. It's like, isn't that good? In the good years, and then uh, had to buy uh, my wife out. Yeah. So got a massive mortgage. Insane. Buying yourself some. Yes, I wanted to keep, for various reasons, but to keep the family home, I thought was really important for my kids who were struggling a little bit with it. It helps B get somewhere maybe local. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She she did have somewhere local and we got into a really good routine of the kids going, you know, we shared, we had a two-week cycle, you know, so every other weekend, I was was a bit like Jacqueline Hyde, I always felt, you know, where one weekend I was like trying to be this perfect dad, supportive, loving, and next weekend I was out getting pissed, you know, kind of (laughs) rolling in, you know, two in the morning, three in the morning, four in the morning, but kind of learning to be a divorcee, you know, and things like that, you know. Bizarrely, a lot of it I can't remember. I think it was so mad that any sense of time, dates didn't exist it was kind of yeah it was it was a difficult time but it's past now it's past we moved on to new pastures Um, new houses so yep so um in the end yeah so uh, so so basically my daughter ella went off to university yeah uh, to edinburgh for uh she did politics uh at edinburgh for four years um and then did a short-term contract in bangkok and then went to Cambridge to do a master's. And then my son went off to Sussex to do his undergraduate uh, degree. He did politics and international relations. Okay, so both politicky. Yeah, very politicky. Probably yeah. my fault by yeah, so putting the news it. Uh, uh, yeah. But it, the realisation was that I had this big house, family home in Kew, and nobody in it, which was... There's two things. One is it's financially stupid. You've got to think, what would Tony do? Yeah, well, yeah. And also, I kind of felt it was a family home. In and, the front room. You know, and yeah. Well, my dad was very keen to move in. I just go, I'm not, I couldn't care for him. So have you got any savings? <laughs> yeah, you've got any savings. <laughs> Fuck off yeah, then. Yeah. Um, and actually, his health deteriorated and quite quickly, his physical health. And he said, I, I think one day he just says, we had this really difficult Christmas where I was literally going there in the evening to put him to bed and then coming back at six in the morning to get him up and quite often you know he was decrepit and that we had other carers coming in during the day where's this at home yeah no at his house his house in uh, primrose hill and um he had this incredible uh, gp who'd come around every week and see him Um, luckily he lived very close to the and one day she just took me to one side and i thought it's going to be you need to you know he's not good he's dying or something she goes I'm more worried about you than your dad. You know, when did you last sleep? And I go, it's not, I don't know. I can't remember when I last had any sleep. You know, I was just talking gibberish (laughs) from all this sort of, you know, yeah. And she just like, seriously, you're going, you're killing yourself. You know, (laughs) it's your dad who's meant to go first. And I don't know if the sequence or even if she spoke to my dad, but a few weeks later, he said to me, I need to go into a home. This isn't working. And so we shipped him off to a home for yeah. a couple of years, yeah. which he loved. He actually, you know, 
there were some things he didn't like about it and he moaned about a lot of things but maybe that when you get into your 90s you're allowed to do well, that anything like yeah. yeah but he made new friends you know and some of those were the carers some of those yeah. were it's a bit more life in front stuff. of you yeah and you know there was people there to talk to rather yeah. than this living he'd lived a, after my mum died a very if I or the carers we employed who only went in for 45 minutes an hour weren't there he just sat on his own watching the telly it's really dusty yeah, it's really, yeah dusty yeah, yeah decline yeah, yeah. So when did your dad die in the end uh, March last year, so uh, twenty-one. He was ninety-four. Oh, good, good. Yeah, good innings. Yeah, good innings. Yeah. yeah, kind of just drifted away yeah. in the end. Everything that they had in London has all been all sold. Yeah, sold, disappeared. I sold his house once he went into the home when it was obvious he wasn't ever yeah. coming home. But then you need that um, to fund the. Other yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the thing is. Yeah, maybe talk about you know, that. This, well. I mean, we've yeah, well, you and I have talked about yeah. this. The cost of care. Yeah. Yeah. is staggering yeah. but I always felt it's his money yeah. and it's, it's not for me to kind of no. yeah. say you know how much you're spending but it was you know between my mum and my dad we spent hundreds and hundreds of thousands yeah. of pounds yeah. on providing care but that luckily they um, had the money to spend yeah and, and unless I could have looked after them full time no, it's not uh, worth it. And no. Like I said, you end up killing yourself in the end. Yes, okay. you know, and, and respect to people who do it, you know. It's um, hard work. So, so you met Meg? Megan, yes, Megan? back in, gosh, something like 2010, a mutual friend set us up at a dinner party uh, and the rest is kind of history. Yeah. So we took a, it wasn't until last year, was it last year, that we actually ended up living together. Hello. So you took a tiny foothold, you left a tiny foothold in Chiswick, but yes. you're out of... Yeah, we took this kind of ill-thought-out, unplanned, unthought-through decision to... Uh, we've ended up in the North Cotswolds, where we are now. Yeah, which is called Grey... Uh, Temple Guiting. Temple Guiting, yeah. yeah. Um, we've got this house here, yeah. and the plan was we'd kind of see how it goes... Yeah. Maybe we'd be here every weekend, long week. You start doing long weekends, cutting back on work, yeah. things like that. But we love it so much. We're here yeah. the whole well, time, practically. Yeah, this, is uh, place, this is kind of home. Uh, yeah. We've got five kids between us. They all love coming here. Yeah. As you saw when you drove in, it's yeah. kind of beautiful around yeah. here. Um, nice. So I've gone from city boy. So you feel to, settled here. Yeah, very settled. I mean, uh, last week I was up in London for four days with some work. Yeah. Uh, tomorrow. Just feels like a workplace. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, at the moment we're not ready to give up London. No. And we got here in uh, February. So every day was kind of getting longer yeah. in daylight hours mm. and warmer. Yeah. And also... Like yeah, full winter, you know, and we're quite high here. We're at yeah. 600 and something feet. So it gets quite... I don't know. I'm impressed you're just in a T-shirt. Um, too bad to me. Oh, it does? <laughs> yeah. OK. Um, but, you know, take, you know the, the, uh, the fire has to go on every night practically. Yeah, well. and, um, but it is, you know, it's, you know, it's, real, it's yeah. real weather, real yeah. winter, yeah. Um, which is good. But we were here all the summer. Yeah. And I kind of think if you're not here all summer, you've made a massive mistake. Because, yeah, no. you know, what's not to love yeah. about it? Lots of people to come yeah. and stay for... Yeah. And space. <laughs> yes, yeah. plenty of space, you know. Um, so, yeah, no, it's good. Yeah. kind of feel like I'm on the... I've just started a new chapter in my life yeah. of yeah. semi-retirement, I think yeah. it's best described at. Maybe we should yeah. wrap it up. Yeah, lovely. Well, thanks, Alex. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, pleasure. Yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant.